Welcome to BioCentury This Week, the podcast with BioCentury's editorial team. I'm Jeff Cranmer, executive editor here at BioCentury, and joining me today are my colleagues. I'm Stephen Hansen, director of Biopharma Intelligence. Paul Bananos, director of Biopharma Intelligence. I'm Lauren Martz, executive director of Biopharma Intelligence. On today's podcast, we've got two big deals to discuss each in one of the hot areas of this cold, cold biotech winter, obesity and ADCs. Uh, today's acquisition of obesity play Carmont by Roche for $2.7 billion up front and last week's $10 billion takeout of well-traveled biotech Immunogen by AbbVie for its lead ADC. We'll also discuss FDA's CAR-T safety concerns, which may put the modalities future at risk. All right, let's jump right in. Roche didn't really think of them as an obesity player, Stephen. Uh, what does this deal mean for this space that has two very clear-cut leaders in Novo Nordisk and Eli Lilly? Thanks, Jeff. No, you're right. I wouldn't have thought of Roche as a potential company that would be acquiring uh, an assets or a pipeline in obesity either. But, you know, they really seem like this is, you know, a place where they're going to want to play. But I think it's going to cost them a lot more than the $2.7 billion that they spent to acquire Carmont to do that. Roche, you know, historically has been a company that has done really well in specialty market areas. So they have, almost all of their products are in specialty markets. Obviously, obesity, diabetes is a primary care market. So that is a different type of model that they'll have to adopt once if they do get these assets to the commercial space. Obviously, there's a lot of manufacturing know-how that goes into peptides, which is what these are, peptides and small molecules. Obviously, Roche has a lot of know-how in biologics, uh, which they can hopefully apply here as well. But it's probably going to require a big investment from Roche in terms of doing the development for these programs. Obesity, diabetes are going to require cardiovascular outcomes trials. Those run 15, 20,000 patients. And then on top of that, you know, as you mentioned, Lilly, Novo already have a massive head start and a long history of marketing products in these spaces. So that's a lot to a lot to go up against. But, you know, if there are a few companies in the space that could take on a Lilly or a Novo in diabetes, I guess in terms of the financial firepower they've got, Roche is probably one of them. Yeah. And it's not it's not like they haven't done this before in a new area, as you point out in their in their story. They they were a new entrant to MS at one point. That's right. Yeah. Can you speak to that at all? Sure. Yeah. No. No. That's and that's. I think that's a totally fair point on their end. I mean, credit to them. They developed um, Ocrevus uh, Ocrelizumab, which was sort of a new area for them, as you say, in MS, and that is now you know the leading drug in MS. Similarly, in hemophilia, they, you know, they had no, no presence in hemophilia, uh, developed Hemlibra, and that's now, I think, doing, you know, nearly 3.5 billion, 3.4 billion, I think, US in sales the first nine months. So they've done really well, and they've shown that they have a track record of moving into new spaces and doing well in those new spaces. Um, but both of those were also specialty spaces. And mm -hmm. so, um, you know, that's, I think, a just the slightly different challenge here will be sort of, you know, the size and the breadth of the, um, you know, of, of the team that they're going to have to build to support these sorts of products. Mm -hmm. And and what are they getting in this deal? You, you mentioned they're getting a whole pipeline here. Sure. Yep. So Carman has three clinical stage assets. 
the lead program is a dual agonist of GLP-1 and GIP, GIP. So it has a similar mechanism to Lily's Mounjoro, uh, terzepatide. They've reported phase one data. Uh, that was pretty good. Uh, so it was just a four weeks for this interim readout in phase one, but the highest dose showed 8% weight loss at four weeks, which is actually pretty impressive. So they're running that in phase two now. Uh, they also have an oral small molecule GLP-1 agonist, once daily, that is in phase one. And then separately, they have, it's also a dual GLP-1 GIP uh, once daily injection, and that is for it's for obesity and type 1 diabetes patients. So there's those three programs, plus there are preclinical assets that they haven't disclosed yet that Roche is going to be adding. And Stephen, Karmat was in the IPO queue. They actually filed a prospectus a couple of weeks ago. Do you get a sense that uh, this was a much more rewarding path for them? Yeah, no, I think you're right, Paul. And you know, I'm sure there are going to be a lot of buy-side investors out there who will be quite saddened, actually, in some ways by this deal, who maybe wanted to get in on this IPO. I think if this had gone through, it probably would have been one of the hottest IPOs of the year. Um, but uh, yeah, basically what happened, so I spoke to Heather Turner, the CEO of Carmots, and the sense I got from her was that this was sort of a dual track process they were running. So they were running the IPO at the same time as they were running sort of a transaction process. And she didn't say it in so many words, but I think it was a situation where if you looked at their S1, at their post-money valuation, from their last round, which was in May, which was about 750 million is what she told me their post-money valuation was from that deal. And you just kind of work out the math, you know, what the public market would have been offering in terms of their valuation just didn't come close to what Roche was offering. And really the only way that they could have gotten to a similar level probably would have required them to, you know, take on the risk of running the phase two trial as a public company getting a really positive readout from that phase two, and then having a market that would be willing to reward that positive phase two readout. So there's a lot of ifs, you know, and buts that are kind of in between sort of doing the IPO and potentially reaching a point to where you'd be valued at the same, you know, 2.7 billion that Roche was offering now. Added on to that was, you know, she very strongly, you know, pushed the point as well that another factor was just getting these assets into the hands of a company that was committed to competing, that basically the caveats, you know, with knowing that Roche isn't in the space yet, but basically had made the commitment that they wanted to be a player who would compete with Lily and Eli, who understood the investments that would be required and were willing to make those investments. She was saying that that was a big sort of factor for them as well in this process. And so, you know, in the end, valuation, all these other bits sort of came together. And, um, you know, I think from the timing, they were supposed to sort of do the IPO today. But as it works out, um, the Roche deal was the better offer. All right. And Carmont's largest shareholder, the Column Group. And uh, according to the Biotech's prospectus, the firm had a uh, 40% stake. That's right. Works out to a little more than a billion dollar return for them. So a good good day for the Column Group uh, today, I'm sure. Indeed. Well, speaking of good days, Immunogen had one last week. The company has been around for decades. And they've certainly had some twists and turns in their story. AbbVie comes along and, and buys the ADC play for $10.1 billion. Uh, long time coming. Paul. Yes, it has been. Yeah, as you say, Immunogen is more than 40 years old now. 
And although they've been instrumental in creating two other drugs, uh, Cadsila and Sarclisa, that uh, are marketed by partners, that company has finally brought its first wholly owned drug to market. The drug is Elahir. You may know it as Mervituximab sorevtansine. It's an ADC targeting folate receptor 1 or folate receptor alpha, if you like. Um, it has accelerated approval for a subpopulation of patients with ovarian cancer. You know, keeping with trends we've seen, a lot of biotech M&A over the past couple of years has been involving late stage or marketed products that have been de-risked. In this case, Elahir's launch uh, has gone very well. It was approved November of last year, 2022. Sales have risen steadily. Uh, they reached $105 million in 3Q. And then, you know, obviously another trend, ADCs are staying hot. Um, we've seen deals around that modality quite a bit. Merck did the big deal with Daiichi uh, this fall, obviously CGen being acquired by Pfizer in a mega deal as well. And I, I mentioned quarterly sales of $100 million. Uh, AbbVie believes that um, they can take Elahir to a much higher goal because they're counting on label expansions. Right now, uh, Elahir is approved for folate receptor 1 high patients with platinum-resistant disease in a second line or later setting. But on Thursday's call, AbbVie management said that if they can win more approvals in a maintenance setting and in platinum-sensitive disease, they think that Elhir can reach at least $2 billion in peak annual sales. So, Paul, what was um, – can you tell us a little bit more about this, the, some of the transactional details here? What was the, what was the premium that AbbVie was – you know, that AbbVie ended up paying for Immunogen? Yeah, it was, it was on the high side. The purchase price was almost twice Immunogen's closing price before the deal, a 95% premium. The price was $31 and change. And if you look at even fairly recent history for that stock, Immunogen was trading below $5 just a few months ago before it had confirmatory data for Elahir. I mentioned accelerated approval, right? And it really it had been in the single digits for most of the past few years, really most of the time since uh, the CEO, Mark Entity, joined in 2016. You remember Immunogen has run into some snags. They had a trial failure in 2019. Uh, for Elahir in a broader group of platinum-resistant patients. They did some restructuring. You know, it's, it is it is kind of a comeback for them. And for AbbVie, the deal seems like a fit. In oncology, AbbVie is better known for hemonc drugs like Imbruvica and Venclexta. But it's been developing uh, solid tumor therapies, including ADCs, for some time. And some of its products are now into later stages. There's a, an ADC called Teliso-V, that AbbVie has high hopes for, for example. So buying Immunogen gives AbbVie commercial infrastructure that's already in place for a drug that's doing well in the early going. And as AbbVie's pipeline matures, there's infrastructure for the pipeline to sort of grow into, and they can augment from there. Plus, uh, AbbVie does get a couple more products in Immunogen's pipeline. They're much earlier stage. Most of the deal's value is wrapped up in Elahir. So it's also worth mentioning, you asked about the premium. So we, we should know more soon about the competition for Immunogen. As you know, a, a regulatory filing usually comes out within a few weeks of a deal announcement describing the background of the deal. And with most recent M&A, especially for companies with assets that have reached the market, there are multiple suitors. Um, you don't get their names in the filing, but you do learn about other offers and usually an escalating price. Like I said, 95% is toward the high end of what we've been seeing among premiums for um, billion dollar and and beyond deals, 10 and 11 figures. So soon we'll know about where the bidding started and how it got to where it wound up. So stay tuned on that. Kind of suggests a competitive scenario though, doesn't it? If it's uh, the premium ends up being that high. 
toward the high end. Yeah, we, we've seen a lot that are closer to like the 70% range. I know BioCentury ran a data bite on this a while ago. There are a few outliers, but but this was toward the high side. All right. Well, thanks for that, Paul and Stephen. Uh, I'd like to bring Lauren into the conversation now. There is a new serious safety concern for CAR T cell therapies. Last week, FDA issued a statement on the risk of T cell malignancy following BCMA or CD19 directed CAR T cell therapy. Lauren, uh, break this down for us. How concerning is this for the CAR T players out there? Yeah, thanks, Jeff. I, I think the first thing to note is that this isn't completely out of the blue. This isn't a new risk. This is a risk going from a theoretical risk to an actual risk. So it's already in the labels for these CAR T cell therapies that are approved in the U.S. that, that cancers can happen. I think specifically T cell malignancies can happen because what, what you're doing when you're creating a CAR T cell is you're taking a lentiviral vector and using that to express the CAR in a patient's T cells. And lentiviral vectors integrate into the genome of the T cell, and you can't really exactly control where that's going to happen. So, you know, there is always this theoretical risk when you're using a lentiviral vector that it's going to integrate in the wrong place, in a tumor suppressor or in some other location that could potentially lead that cell to proliferate and become cancerous. So everyone knew this is possible. What we've heard from FDA last week is that they are tracking 20 cases of T-cell malignancies in patients who have been treated with any of the six BCMA or CD19 targeted CAR T-cell therapies in the U.S. 15 of those were from FDA's Adverse Events Reporting System database, and five were from clinical trials. So I've seen different estimates of how many patients in the U.S. have actually been treated with CAR T-cells against these two targets, but it's in the many thousands. So you know, this is so far a rare occurrence, you know, 20, 20 cases in, in thousands of treated patients. But we don't have information on when these cancers were detected relative to when the patients were treated. So we don't know how many more of these are going to show up based on patients who have already been treated in that group of, of patients who received the therapy. And um, and that's, that is certainly a risk. But what FDA has said in the statement is that the benefits still outweigh the risks for all of these approved therapies. Something I think is important to note is that the direction that CAR T's and cancer are moving is toward earlier lines of treatment. You know, second line, we have a second line approval moving toward even potentially first line at some point. And as I think as you move earlier, the tolerance for risk obviously goes down. So so that's going to be a potential issue. And then there's of course the the fact that CAR T-cell therapies are moving beyond cancer into indications where the future in those applications really depends on the safety, you know, to treat lupus or or other autoimmune diseases. CAR T-cell therapies really need to have a a very solid safety profile. So I think there's some uncertainty about how this now real risk could potentially impact the movement of this modality into those indications. I mean, mean, that's kind of the big question for me, right, Lauren? I mean, because obviously we're just sort of at that point where having conversations with investors where that's the big thing they're talking about is the potential for CAR-Ts and autoimmune. And so do you think that there's 
I, the thing I worry about is whether this would put off people putting money into companies that are working on autoimmune CAR T's, even if it is sort of just a theoretical, very rare risk. Do you think that there's a chance that this could put a big dent in the enthusiasm for CAR T's in the autoimmune space? Well, I think I think last week we did see Cavaletto, which is one of the more advanced companies doing that. You know, the, their share sank almost 30 percent um, the day that this was announced. I think obviously it's a concern. At the same time, the data that we've seen from investigator initiated trials specifically for CAR T cells in, in some of these indications, uh, I think lupus has been the most striking. It's so far very, very impressive. The, the chance that you could potentially have a functional cure or at least a very long-term effect having patients off treatments it, it is pretty remarkable. So it'll be interesting to see how investors are going to weigh the, the risks and the benefits. Yeah. And uh, Caballetta wasn't the only one to take a hit. We also saw Cartesian fall, uh, not, not as severely, but they did take a, a little bit of a knock. Shares of Graycell also tumbled uh, about 17% on the day it was announced. But then again, Lauren, as you and I have been discussing, that company's stock is way up this year. So maybe just a profit-taking opportunity there. Well, Graycell is going after autoimmune diseases. I don't think that they've advanced into the clinic yet, but they have had very impressive data for a dual targeting BCMA CD19 CAR-T for cancer. Well, Lauren, I was just curious. You mentioned earlier about how you know the risk comes from the lentiviral vector's sort of integration risk there. Do you have to use a lentiviral vector to create these CAR-Ts or are there other technologies that can be used? There are some non-viral technologies that companies and academic groups are using to create CAR-Ts. And I don't know all of the technologies that you could use, but I, I think there are probably ways that this risk could be reduced in the, the manufacturing process for CAR-Ts. So it will be interesting to see going forward if there are ways to predict this risk or intercept it early and if there are ways to minimize it by the vectors used or, or by even not using a vector to express the car. All right. And, and then just peeking at gray cells pipeline really quickly, it does look like they have an autoimmune trial in play. It's investigator initiated uh, in re refractory SLE, and then they've gotten a U.S. Phase One Two IND cleared, so it's it's on the way. All right, thanks for the update, Lauren. Two things just call your attention to on Biocentury.com. As you heard about on the podcast last week, our colleague Karen Takach Tuzman did a deep dive into the radio pharmaceutical space. That is now online with a downloadable. PDF of her analysis. And we also have Steve Usden's BioCentury show episode and story on what's happening at ARPA-H. He sits down with the agency's first director to learn how she is creating an agency that aims to do things that seem impossible. So the story is up on our website. And you can watch the BioCentury Show episode on the BioCentury YouTube channel. Thanks for tuning in this week. We'll catch you next week. Kendall Square Orchestra provides the music for BioCentury this week. The group connects science and technology professionals 
and other members of the greater Boston community to collaborate, innovate, and inspire through music while supporting causes related to healthcare and education.